John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning to you. We are at the end of three episodes of a series we've called The Offer of Christianity. And it has centered in on three words. Justice is the first one. Demanding social correction for grave injustice and how the offer of Christianity addresses and gives justice. The second one was hope. Where do we find that human need for hope so that we can live in the present? Hope for the future so that we can live in the present. And the third one, that's this week, morality. Uh, On what basis, on what basis can we ask a society or even a person to do good things? And what is the offer of Christianity as it comes to morality? I want to jump in immediately and I want to offer three different little stories that I can thread throughout our time together this morning uh, that will help us when we look at morality. One is a personal or micro local example of morality. The second is a regional or national issue that we can look at morality in. And the third one is a global one. So the first one I read just a few days ago. It's about an Arizona woman, Hannah Clevenger. And this last week she was weaving through traffic in an erratic manner. And she was going over 70 miles an hour in Uh, 35 mile an hour zones, 45 mile an hour zones, in zones that you could not and should not be going 70 70 miles an hour. Uh, She refuses to pull over uh, for law enforcement uh, at a stoplight. She stops at a stoplight and she looks over squarely in the eyes of a police officer, smiles, nods her head, and then goes on her erratic way. Uh, A little bit later, she was arrested at her home and she was asked why she didn't stop uh, for the officer. And she said, uh, because I felt it was the right thing to do. It just felt right to me. And there is no law that can change that. It's kind of a personal micro example. The second one I have is more regional, more national. And uh, regardless of your political opinion, it, uh, it, this issue has impact for the state of California. And I want to use this as a foil here because I I know that whatever side you take on this issue, you probably feel pretty strongly about it. Uh, And it's a border wall uh, and our border stringency um, in Mexico, um, especially around Tijuana. So on one side, you have a political party that says a border wall is immoral. So it invokes morality as and, and points to a universal value. Um, the other political side in this issue uh, has a policy that's been uh, named Remain in Mexico. Uh, 
and they cite a moral obligation to protect the citizens of the U.S. So that's uh, the second story is a regional and national issue as well. Uh, there's a final and global example that I want us to use throughout our time this morning. Uh, a, a couple weeks ago, and, and you might have read this, but uh, January 25th, uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping was in uh, at the World Economic uh, Forum in Davos. And he invoked a, a, a Chinese proverb or a Chinese idiom, and, and it said this, no two leaves in the world are identical. No two leaves in the world are identical. And he was saying is each country is unique and none is superior to the other. And he said in his speech, he said, you know, societies are not evaluated or judged by a set of universal values or morals. Um, so how are they judged? What, are, what is the basis for moral judgments? And, and this is from uh, Xi Jinping's speech. Uh, of course, it's translated. And he said, uh, this to quote him, it says, the best criteria are whether a country's history, culture, and social system fit its particular situation and serve to deliver political stability, social progress, and better lives. He went on to say in his speech, um, difference, so having different moral judgments Difference in itself is no cause for alarm. And then he said this, um, this is what should be alarming to all global citizens. What, and I quote him here, what does ring the alarm is arrogance, prejudice, and hatred. And, and I quote him, trying to force one's own history, culture, and social system upon others. Okay, those three examples, local, regional, and global, um, actually point out a problem. Um, we need a moral authority by which to measure and call or hold all people to. Um, and there's three levels of this. It's, I, I call it like, I should, you should, and then we should because. So the first one is this. Um, uh, this is the I should, right? I, you have what we call moral conviction. Like, I, I think this, I feel strongly about this, I feel that stopping for a policeman is wrong, I feel going home is right. That is a personal moral, moral uh, conviction, like Hannah Clevenger from Arizona. I, I feel that it's not right to ever shoot someone, so I won't. I feel I should always be kind. So a person thinks and feels something and so that's that's moral condition I think and I feel I think and I feel the second one it goes beyond personal moral conviction and the second one is moral obligation so it's not just that I think um, I feel that going 75 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone is wrong it's not that I just that I feel it you should think that too Regardless of what you feel about it, you should comply. You should be held to this moral obligation. So let me up the ante here, all right, instead of talking about driving. Um, I, it's not that I say I think racism is despicable, even if you don't. What, what, what do I say beyond that? Not only do I think it, I think it's wrong 
everywhere, at all places, at all times. So the second one is moral obligation, not just personal conviction. Now the third one is what we'd call moral motivation. Um, uh, why? Why should someone act morally? Um, so I could say this, we should eliminate systemic racist policies and statutes, and we should eliminate societal structures that perpetuate inequalities, and we should be vigilant of implicit and unspoken uh, microaggressions. Um, I should recycle, you, sh you should recycle. The question is, uh, uh, on what authority, based upon what? Like, how do I know if something is good and right universally, and how do I know if something is uh, bad or evil universally? or wrong universally. Um, what, is the, what is the rationale? What is the grounding? What is the basis for moral judgments? So every religion and culture answers this question and they propose a reason. Even a modern secular culture and society has a basis or reasons for deciding what's good and what's bad. And I think there's a distinct, unique offer of Christianity that provides something here. Um, before we get there, we do have to look at how does a modern secular society find any sort of moral authority, okay, apart from divinity, without without God? How, do, how does a secular society find moral authority without God? Now, every pre-modern culture, um, there was some sort of uh, uh, sacred order, uh, either above or outside the system of humanity. Um, uh, you ought not to do this thing because the deity says you ought not to do this thing. You should do this thing because the deity thinks it's a very good idea. Um, even the Greeks, uh, they felt that, that there was this logos, this cosmic order, transcendent order, this set of moral absolutes that and ideals behind the universe that just existed. And, and somehow, in kind of a Greek platonic kind of way, you had to connect to this you had to connect to this cosmic order, this universal order, to live a good and virtuous life. So they had some sort of rational explanation of that moral authority. So how does the secular mind, the secular modern, you know, non-religious society, um, how, do they, how do they find good moral authority um, without the transcendent? And I do think there's some big problems with finding a moral basis if you are a non-religious secular um, society. Now, uh, what we're not saying here is that uh, we're not saying that non-religious people or secular people can't be good. No, that that that's absolutely ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. You've heard many of you have heard me say this before. Is my neighbors and my friends who do not know Jesus or follow Him are perhaps morally better in certain categories, in various categories, than I am, right? This is not a good-looking or a looking-good contest. Um, we're asking a very, very different question this morning. And that question is, on what grounds, on what rationality, on what authority are we declaring something good and bad for our culture and society? Now, now this is why we ask that question. Um, should we fight racism because it is at odds with the universe itself? Or 
should we fight racism because we have all cast a vote, found social consensus, and we have found that is unhelpful to humanity in our current moment? See, on what grounds do you, what motivation do you want to fight racism? So how do we make moral judgments? On what basis are, are you calling everyone else to adhere and act on the same um, authority or grounds? All right, uh, in, in Los Angeles, we can look south to our Mexican neighbors and we can say, oh, you are equal in your humanity. You are equal in dignity. And we can also look at refugees from Ecuador and Guatemala uh, streaming north. Now, someone might say, as they have, um, we don't need a wall. We need help. And that is something we would call good. But someone else comes along and say, now why are their lives my problem? Um, why should I have my taxes and funds flow to them? I have no moral obligation to them. Um, what does a secular culture say to morally charged issues, just like the border or in the border wall? Let's say the West feels Uyghur concentration camps are immoral. They're wrong. And let's say Xi Jinping does not feel that way. The West will say, you are morally obligated to stop those Uyghur concentration camps. You're moral, it is objectively wrong to deny um, any human being from full flourishing and to um, hold them captive based on religious sentiment. Um, we would, the West would tell President Xi Jinping, you're wrong. You're wrong. The West has said that. And Xi Jinping could say this, okay, I'm listening. Give me your non-religious reasons why. And so I think secular, the secular mind, the secular academic ethic, ethical mind offers up five general um, strategies and reasons and grounds. So the first one is this, it's just time to grow up argument. So uh, w what that means is morality has evolved in based on the past. So our ancestors had similar feelings um, and behavior and they had those, that, that, those similar behaviors and feelings helped them to survive. And the basis of morality is that um, an organic system of neurons and molecules formed to have these feelings of benevolence. Uh, and it aided us in this way is um, these feelings of benevolence to similar organisms aided in the propagation of all similar organisms. Okay, here's where that falls apart. Uh, okay, maybe that kind of behavior helped your ancestors but that doesn't oblige you. That doesn't coerce me or you to live that way. I don't have to follow it if I don't want to, right? That's not an imperative. Saying that they existed is not an obligation or an imperative. Um, there's no obligation to follow the feeling of evolution. The, the second one I, I call 
it'll actually benefit you. It's the pragmatic argument. So we, we might tell President uh, Xi Jinping, we might say, why not just free the Uyghurs? It's more practical for you. Um, there will be less problems internationally. There will be less conflict. You won't have to cover up anything. Less battles with the West. You, you might even become more wealthier. Um, it might open up more economic opportunities. It's in your own best interest to be nice to the Uyghurs. So be nice to the Uyghurs. Okay. This is where that falls apart. Okay. So you're not saying it's evil you're saying it's impractical what you're saying is the reason is um, uh, it's in China's self best in interest it's for selfish gains so so selfishness is really the basis on which we should help the Uyghurs um, and the Chinese could say well we just don't want to that's selfish too the more the poor die off the more resources are left for the strong Okay, the third one is democratic moral voting. It's one that you probably heard in your university class. Uh, social consensus. Look, our culture just forms up these ethics, these rights and these wrongs. Um, that's what um, President Xi Jinping said in his speech. History, culture, and social systems fit its particular situation and serve to deliver political stability, social progress, and better lives for that culture and situation. Um, so we could say this, human ownership, aka slavery. Years ago, we did it, but now we kind of got together on this, and we're a little bit more enlightened, and it's wrong. We've come to this social consensus now uh, about all human rights, and benevolence and equality and we've all agreed we've all kind of democratically voted this as an evil uh, and so we're not going to do that anymore we're gonna fight against it okay here's how that reasoning kind of falls apart uh, a thousand years ago when it was social consensus that slavery was okay you'd have to say was it okay back then since social consensus formed up the ethics and someone would say well no 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 it was actually wrong back then too um, the Uyghurs right if you believe this uh, if you believe in this way you cannot have one culture foist their rights upon other cultures Xi Jinping is using the West's secular ethic against them we have to be consistent. Um, the, the fourth is this. It's called um, like the intrinsic sense. Um, we would tell President Xi, Xi Jinping or anybody else, look, um, it's just wrong. You know it's wrong to uh, uh, coerce people and hurt people. It's just wrong to watch and let another human being storm. It's just common sense. Right? Everybody knows this. Everybody affirms it. Everybody gets it. Okay, that means that everybody should be on the same page, right? But then they're not. Everybody is not on the same page, and so it hardly seems like common sense. And so the intrinsic argument is very difficult 
to get across the board. The fifth one is you're going to find humorous. It's this. Okay, here's the motivation, the grounds for moral rightness. Okay, let's go outside and fight about it. It's violence. I'm going to strike out at you until you agree with me or go along with my convictions. Now, this is what the secular basis of morality turns into. It's actually not real morality. It's just power. It's just wielding a bigger stick. My thoughts, my feelings, my convictions need to take superiority over your opinion. Now, what do you get when power pushes and drives convictions? Oppression. Once my party gets in position of power, we are going to take our morals, and our morals are going to be the action of the day. It doesn't matter what party you're a part of, Republican, Libertarian, Democratic. Guess what? This is how you push a moral ethic. You get power and you push your opinions on. Everybody's guilty of this. We yell louder, we tweet louder, we talk meaner, we write more forcefully, we cancel opposition in every way. If we socially vote on things, we also have to admit that we have created evil in the very same way. The Japanese internment camps, which many, many of our families people that are still alive today witnessed and experienced was done democratically. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, he says this, moral imperatives, moral imperatives from a secular society, and I'm going to use his phrase, is a project that has to fail. Why? He says, all cultures have codes. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. And he said, they're not arbitrary. They're, they're always, they always fit some sort of human purpose. And, 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 and what he means by that, he said that the Greeks had this thing called the logos, you know, the, the reason for something, the reason for order, cosmic order, universal order. And, and, and so McIntyre asked this question. He said, what is the purpose of a human being? What is a human being made for? I'm going to quote him here. He said, moral precepts were not snatched out of thin air. But in every culture, human morals got their punch, their oughtness, from the concrete notion of what human life was for, the telos, or the logos, that order of the universe. I'm, he had an illustration. I'm going to update his illustration, okay? Let's say you pick up a black rectangular object like this, a smartphone, and you've heard people call it a smart cellular unit, right? And that sounds smart. So you're cooking and you're stir frying um, some peppered beef in your wok with this handy little black paddle your kids call a smart and phonic right? And your wife asks you to hang a new picture. And so you take your handy, smart, and phonic, and you smash the nail in with your smart new tool smashing the glass on the front. And you think, wow, that is not such a smart tool. Bad phone, one star, would not buy again. And, and one of you, smart, educated people, would say, hey, Tim, don't be silly. 
You don't judge a smartphone based on what it was not made for. You base its performance on what it was made for. If it sits in my pocket as a communication device, a schedule monitor, a banking intermediary, that's a good phone, good phone, good. If it doesn't work as a spatula for high heat walks, that doesn't make it a bad phone. This is the point, and this is McIntyre's point. You can't make moral judgments of good and bad unless you know what it's made for. So the question is, what are we made for? And McIntyre says this, he says, every religion has an answer for that. They have a basis for their judgments. And, and, and the secular response is that it was an accident. It's strong beating the weak. And if that's true, you can never have a real moral authority or a moral basis for judgment. See, science can tell you um, whether you can do something. Science can say um, how to do it. Um, science can tell you how to replicate it, duplicate it. Science can tell you how to do it more efficiently than you were doing it before. But science cannot tell you if you ought to do something. It has no tools for moral obligation. And we've seen this, right? Um, some of you know about CRISPR. It's the, 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 the basically the editing for the uh, gene sequence, the genetic sequence. And, and science can tell us how to do that, how to replace certain genes or cut out certain genes. But it's powerless to say, should we do that? Ought we to do that? This is the offer of Christianity. These moral realities that you feel intensely, racism is wrong, make more sense with a God than without one. See, we do treat others with a sense that there is moral duty beyond social consensus. Human dignity is not based on social consensus. We sense that deeply, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. And the offer of Christianity gives moral absolutes, yes. And it gives moral standards outside of you, yes. Um, but I think it offers something unique. Um, let me get it at it a different way. Um, so in Los Angeles, um, people I grew up in the church with um, I've worked with university students, and um, they might have grown up or been attached to the church growing up. Um, I even saw my own youth groups um, who were involved in the church. They, uh, by a super majority, have left the church. They've left religion. Um, why did most of them do it? Um, because they left the church over morality. Even if they would articulate it this way or not, they left it over morality. Why? They looked at the church and they saw how arrogant the church was, how indifferent it was, how elitist it was, how smug it was, how there was just all of this hypocrisy, how, how it was cruel and vitriolic. And, and what they did is they left these stringent moral codes that reeked of power plays. And then they basically just said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go with secular relativism. Why? Because it just seems nicer. It seems nicer to other people. It seems more inclusive. It's kind. It's non-judgmental. Um, 
And all of these moral values are socially constructed anyway. No one has the moral high ground. Now, what they did, what they did is they said, I'm going to take moral relativism because the moral compliance I've seen in the church is an absolute joke. Just hypocrites. But what they didn't realize is that relativism is not a solution. Like it doesn't fix anything, it doesn't change anything, it doesn't heal anything, it doesn't make things better, or give any sort of obliging authority. You can't tell the Chinese that Uyghur camps are bad. You can't say that. Not with moral relativism. You can't say your opinion about a border wall is just as valid as your opponent's opinion about a border wall with moral relativism. See, your firm and vocal support of anti-racism is just as valid as a Proud Boys rally with moral relativism. Now, do you remember what I said about the Greeks um, who believed in some sort of logos, some sort of cosmic order of the universe? Um, they, they felt this deeply, that there was moral absolutes. There were universal standards. And if somehow you got connected to that logos mojo, that standard, that order, that ideal, then you would be living life well, you'd be living virtuously, you'd be living uh, constructively, you would be flourishing, right? In a, in a manner befitting the species. And they called that order logos, the logos, the truth that stood behind and above humanity. That, that's our text this morning. John opens his gospel this way. He says this, In the beginning was the word, Logos. And the word, Logos, was with God. And the Logos, the word, was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Logos was in the beginning with God. Th this is what John is saying. In the beginning... Jesus. Why did why does why does why does John in the early church call Jesus the word logos? Why do they use this technical Greek philosophical term that's not a term used in Judaism? What were these new Christ people expressing? There is logos. There is a moral order. There are moral standards that we derive and get what moral obligations from. He doesn't stand, he does stand above them, yes, but, 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 um, he doesn't stand there as this ethereal, floating, um, kind of abstract thought unattached to anything. Because if, if they were just floating abstractions, we could say they're abstract, and I'm living according to them, and all these noobs and morons and idiots are, and terrible people who are not living according to them, and all these stupid people need to get their act together. Um, because at the end of the day, if they're abstract, then you're just living according to some standards you've set up, and they're floating out there, and they're ones where I'm always superior to you. But Christianity was saying, no, the Logos exists in its rational order, and it's not abstract and floating, it's a person. 
It's Jesus Christ himself. Now here's the clincher. There are absolutes, yeah. But the greatest moral obligation is what? If Logos is Jesus and Jesus is Logos, the order and the moral absolute, um, what is the greatest moral obligation? To know him. Love him, even. Now, why do I say it like that? Because through him, through Jesus, you get to the very heart of that universe. The very logos, the very order, the very purpose, the very fire, the very moral spine to call things good and concentration camps and slavery and racism evil. See, Christians believe that we're, we're, we're not rescued and we're not reunited to this Logos, what, through meeting moral demands. But Christians believe this, we're connected to him through what? Through him becoming a part of our species and living the life you wanted to live, but you didn't. And dying the death you earned, but didn't. And forgiving us for every last moral breach. We live and get our morality from him, not our obedience. And that kind of kills hypocrisy, doesn't it? It kills it. Now, you can tell me this. You know, look, look, you don't understand. A, a bunch of Christians I know, they are mean and they're hateful and they're spiteful and they're arrogant and they tweet stupid stuff and they seem to care very little about the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized. I would tell you this. someone who deeply gets the core of Christianity. And what I, what I mean by that is the core of Christianity that says, I am not saved through my own moral superiority. What I do and don't do. I would say this, is they can't feel proud. They cannot feel smug. And someone who gets to this says, I don't appeal. I don't appeal to my own moral standards and performance. Someone who gets that, who gets the enfleshed Logos, Jesus Christ, is their everything, then they begin to live by grace and not moral performance. You get someone who is what? Living morally dependent on Jesus, not morally independent. And when you see someone that gets that, it is incredibly humbling and softening and it creates gentleness and it makes a person ever so compassionate. See, this is the offer of Christianity is you can have moral absolutes but it doesn't turn you into an arrogant, self-affirming jerk that must have power to push their convictions. And only Christ, the Logos, offers that. That's the offer of Christianity for morality. Jesus, all morality is found in knowing you. You are at the very heart you are the Logos that the Greeks dreamed about but didn't know.
you have revealed yourself to us. And so would you bring us closer to yourself through the power and work of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.